Hi, this is Paul. John Verveke and Jordan Peterson had a conversation. Um, it was quite technical. I There were some interesting parts in it, though, and I want to play some of the pieces that sort of are similar, I think, in quality to the biblical series. Now, some of you might be wondering why I haven't done any more Exodus work. Uh, just this morning, in fact, I woke up, uh, opened up my YouTube studio, and so I had a copyright strike from the video where I talked about the wild, the rewilding of Christianity, where I played a very little small segment of the Exodus seminar on that video and had a copyright strike. So that's the first copyright strike that I've had ever. So I, um, you know, there's a way to contact Daily Wire, and I sent them a copy of Jordan's tweet and said, you know, here's the takedown, what gives? So we'll see what Daily Wire has to say about the takedown. Um, I don't know if they want more process or if they're just going to say, well, Jordan can say what he wants, but we own the material. Um, who knows? So until further notice, there won't be any Exodus stuff coming out from me just because I, you know, I, I maybe could do a little bit of something with some of the teasers that, that they put out, but none of that. But this is here on YouTube, and so I think we can... Uh, I think we can get into some of this, and uh, there's some there's some interesting there's some interesting stuff in this. So let's take a look. So, but, but if you take a look, right? If you take a look at some of the leading theories, uh, let's take the global workspace theory, for example. And what's the okay? Now he's talking about consciousness, and if you go to the videos from the Thunder Bay event, um, consciousness was a big part of that topic and conversation. Now, a little, little early indication, we have in the works planned a conference with Jonathan Peugeot and John Verveke and myself for Southern California in May. And as um, those plans continue to roll out, it'll be similar to Thunder Bay in that there are the three of us there. The topic will be a little bit different. It will be a little bit more focused on um, religion and the viability of religion, part of what's happening with the development of some of these conferences is that they're quite intentionally, um, I'm, I'm encouraging different people who want to host a conference to host a conference their way. That way we'll get a, a diversity of takes and approaches to what's going on in this little corner. So what's, what's the function of consciousness in the global web? So the idea is your consciousness is something like your computer desktop yeah. and your unconscious has all the files and what consciousness is, is I can bring anything onto the desktop and mm -hmm. I can manipulate it and then I can broadcast it back to whatever I need. Right. right? And right. you can, and, well, you update your unconscious doing that too, right? Because yeah. part of what consciousness does seem to do is to assess faulty unconscious actions recalibrate them and rejig them. So consciousness is this thing that moves up and down the hierarchy of unconscious and regulates it. Right, but here's, here's the thing, and this of course is the frame problem. You can't check all of the yeah, possible right. errors, well, right? Yeah, right, that's definitely, right. Like, that's definitely a problem. So, and, and this is, I'm not imposing this. Okay, and again, that's a, a big piece of what we're all dealing with is that problem of scale that, and John goes through this very well in his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, you can't check all the possibilities. You don't have enough time in your life to check all the possibilities. And so that's why there are frames. And you frame things so that you can reduce the combinatorial explosiveness, the incredible complexity of the world, and you can focus on an aspect or, or something. And in that way, you can make the world small enough so that you can actually engage in it. And consciousness is a big part of that. On Bars. Shanahan and Bars, right? They, they public. They and Bars is explicitly argued. Shanahan and has gone on. And Shanahan's important because Shanahan is literally the person who, like, uh, you know, writes the Stanford Encyclopedia article on the frame problem, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so they argue that one of the functions of consciousness is to help solve the issue of relevance realization, the problem of relevance. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't think their solution works, but that, that's not that's not the, the issue. They're saying, look, the function of consciousness is to do enhanced relevance realization. Then you look at the work of Bohr and Seth, and they say, well, what's the function of consciousness? The function of consciousness is like, and think about the relationship to... Now, I'm mind-reading a bunch of you, and I know that some of you, your eyes have already glazed over, you've already lost track, there have been too many footnotes. And that's part of the reason why I suspect a lot of this conversation, a good number of you just won't be interested in, won't track with, don't want to take the time. Some of you will, but a good number of you won't because it's a lot like this. But I promise we're getting to some things that you'll recognize and will be interested in. 
working memory. It's to it's to reorganize and restructure, like like chunking, so we can. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 then it's and why? When do we need that? Well, we need it in situations. Compare when you can drive your car like a zombie and when you can't drive your car yeah, like a zombie, yeah. right? When, when I need consciousness. So when when it, something axiomatic has moved. Well, yeah, yes, and, and, it, and it caches out in this way. The problem I'm facing is now ill-defined rather than a well-defined problem yes. for me. The problem is messy. There's, uh, there's sudden complexity. That's a path-length multiplication yeah, 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 problem. Yes, yes, and right, uh, th there's novelty. There is now stuff that I was previously able to discard as ir irrelevant yeah. error that yeah. I can't discard as irrelevant error anymore. Yeah. So that I okay, there he's John is getting into the question of relevance, but also very much attention. And what now these things are going on beneath the conscious level. Why, why do certain things grab our attention? I, and that would be associated with the fact that you'd have an automatized solution to whatever set of problems was making themselves manifest. Right? That's right. You don't have to attend to it because you've already taken it into account. Even your perceptions has taken it into account. And, and so if you're driving, you know, many of you, they talked about zombie driving. Many of us have had the experience where it's perhaps it's a drive back and forth to work. You have driven that road so many times. You get home and you can't even remember having driven that road. And the reason is because nothing has happened that has caught your attention. And maybe you were thinking you were thinking about whatever it is you're worried about or you're daydreaming or you're imagining what you're going to do this weekend or or what have you. But you can sort of do automatic driving because nothing novel or threatening or a whole bunch of things is happening. And so you just stay right there in doing what you're doing. Allow a lot of little regular networks to run it. Yes, right. But now I get into this situation, and I need to go into, right, a small world network. I need to have the system. I need to evolve and enhance my relevance. That's why you get a flash of consciousness when you have insight. You actually yeah. get that. And so you get that. Yeah, or when something goes wrong. Yes. Right? It's like, uh-oh, oh, yes. that's consciousness. It's yes. Like, who wants that? But Now, I haven't said anything about Jordan's suit. Uh, that's Jordan's Twitter suit, and I guess there's a lot of little... Elon Musk pictures on the tie. Uh, someone someone tailored Jordan a bunch of special suits. We've seen these in some of the other videos. We have the dragon suit, and this is the Twitter suit. And uh, these have been a these have been a topic on Twitter, as you might imagine, where people have their their takes on the suits. Um, my take, I think it's fun. Why not? <laughs> okay, so mm. and and. There's a longer argument here, but you can take a look at, you know, Clearman's uh, radical plasticity hypothesis, uh, Tononi's integrated information. Basically, they all converge on what consciousness is doing is its higher order relevance realization, which of course is what working memory is doing. Like w w the stuff that our colleague, Lynn Hasher, was talking about. Work it's not just Miller's holding space, because that doesn't really account for why chunking is so mm -hmm, important. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's, it's, it's functional. It's, it's, it, 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 it's sort of the last ditch. Uh, uh, survey of how good is my relevance realization before hang in there hang in there we're, we're getting there and something you know right now this can even be an example of what they're talking about you you're hearing all of this stuff go on you don't understand many of the words just on 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 and then jordan's gonna say something and bang you're interested again before i commit to action in the mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. i think salience is actually just relevance to your working memory in that fashion. So the functionality, okay, so if you, let's say that there's a growing convergence, remember plausibility, from many different people onto the function of consciousness is higher order recursive relevance realization. You've, you've, your unconscious has done some preliminary relevance realization and then you do the, yes, but this is the demanding, and you, you, you ratchet up the relevance realization. Mm -hmm. is, is that, is that mm -hmm. plausible? Mm -hmm. Okay, now if you give me that, right, I can start to talk a lot about the phenomenology of consciousness beyond the functionality, but okay. I, need, I, I need to make a distinction. I need to make an important distinction that has not been, well, I, I would argue hasn't been made very well, and therefore there's a deep equivocation and confound. You need to make a distinction between adjectival, qual qualia are the felt experience things. You need to make a distinction between the adjectival qualia and the adverbial qualia. Now, this I think is a very interesting idea, and it's going to go some interesting places. The adjectival qualia and the adverbial quality. He's about to sort of spell it out. 
Tavo qualia are greenness, blueness, you know, that, the, the, the ones that philosophers love to talk about. Adverbial qualia are, are things like here-ness, now-ness, togetherness. Now, if you understand John's four points of knowing, these are the these are the these are the other three besides the propositional. The propositional are greenness. The the bike is green. The car is silver. These things nearness. This is this is much more embodied. Now you say, well, why would I ever need that? Okay, so. Politions work. Why are those adverbial? Because they're modifications of how you are connected to the world. They are not specific properties. Okay, so are, do they, are, do they, does that correspond to a, a noun? That's a noun-verb distinction in some right. sense? Right. So, so it's what things are versus, they differ, what would you say, how modification qualities of their function? How, how they could co-emerge in being and in your consciousness. So let's, let's talk about two pieces of empirical evidence that support what I'm saying. I'm not just drawing this as speculation. One is... And, and, and I've been in this state, um, and it's widely reported, many different uh, people across, many different variables, culturally, history. You can get into what Foreman calls the pure consciousness event. So you're not conscious of anything. You're not even conscious of consciousness. You're just purely conscious. It's, it's... Now, now, if you remember John's conversation with Grim Grizz, this was, uh, this was an item of attention, the pure consciousness state. John talks about it at Thunder Bay. In my conversation with John and Jordan, I very much wanted to bring, um, let's say, popularist mysticism down to the local church level at a very common space. It's, it's certainly below the pure consciousness level, but it's, I think, analogous to what John is often talking about in terms of the non-narrative. Uh, tomorrow, today's the 12th, tomorrow the 13th, my conversation on climbing Mount Sophia will come up and I'll be um, talking about that a little bit more with him. Remember when we talked about you can step back and yeah. you can step back until you, you can't step back any further because you'd be trying to step back in consciousness into unconsciousness, right? And in the pure consciousness event, there, there, are, there is no greenness, there is no blueness, there is no blackness, there are, there are no objects, there are no things, but you don't black out. What there is is there's a sense of hereness but it's pure hereness, eternity, right? And and presence, I should say. Yeah, yeah, eternity. <laughs> this is this is where it gets because in this pure consciousness event, as in many mystical events or at least analogous events, linguistic description is difficult, and you have this right in the New Testament. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about what no eye has seen, what, what no ear has heard. Um, you have, you know, Paul talking about being caught up to the third heaven, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly not unfamiliar with experiences that challenge descriptions. And again, this sort of gets into C.S. Lewis in Miracles when he talks about the nature of language, gets into what Owen Barfield was dealing with. Say and nowness is that that uh, that sense of eternity and 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 then there's everything is one unity togetherness so the hereness and the nowness and the togetherness don't go away even though the adjectival qualia do which tells you the adjectival qualia are not necessary for consciousness but the mm -hmm. adverbial ones so do you think of that as and, and that's I'm gonna have to think a lot more about that. Not not just not just in terms of the observation, but in terms of the um, this is this is where it leads him because it, it's sort of a an assertion about let's say being itself if we want to use that language as an experience of something akin to the ground of being. Yes, because okay. here when you're when like when you're doing is that what is that the name of the, is that the name of God that was announced to Moses? Is that the same idea? Because <laughs> while well, the name is, I am. <laughs> See, I told you he's going to say something that's going to say, what, 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 what? That I am. Right? I, I, I was I, that I am. Well, I want to try and answer that. And I want to try and So I was at, uh, I, I went to, um, uh, where, where, uh, I went to the Respond Retreat and, in Vermont. 
and I was giving my talk on relevance realization, and I was getting great questions from monks, and I was actually interacting with other theorists, and I came to what I think is an important insight. So your system is doing relevance realization, and that is giving you the complexification of the world. It's giving you the world of things, but as you said, organized, like in, in, right? So it's giving you this. But you can come to the, and one of the things relevance realization is interested in is relevance realizing. That's what an insight is. You realize, oh, my way of realizing what's relevant was actually wrong. I have to. Re now, now I, I like, okay, John talks a fair amount about insight. What is insight? It's, you know, obviously it's, uh, it's an experience that we have, but it, it's, if his pure consciousness event is sort of a pure consciousness event, insight is, you know, maybe not exactly, but it's certainly related to the relevance realization event. And it's about um, insight is almost always a connection. If you go back to, again, Jonathan Peugeot, thank, thanks to Mark Lefebvre for pointing this out because, you know, the Exodus, doing much treatment on the Exodus um, series is stalled for me, but as Mark Lefebvre pointed out, Jonathan Peugeot in episode eight has a really nice little bit on why Jordan's biblical series sort of took off the way it did. And a lot of it has to do with the insight that Jordan provoked in people and that insight being the connection, this is what I talk about with respect to the concordism, the connection between the worlds. What, what Jordan did with the Bible is make it relevant. I mean, that's just the language that we use. And, and for many people, here's this book that was not at all relevant, and now suddenly Jordan Peterson has made the book relevant for a number of people. And of course, that's insight. So you say, oh, well, these things in Genesis are connected to these existential, experiential, psychological um, things that I, I don't doubt. In fact, I, I participate in, I believe in, and they're some of the building blocks of my life. Restructure. Yeah, yeah. But, so it's intrinsically, because it's intrinsically evolving and self-correcting, it is intrinsically interested in itself. Okay, so I can do relevance realization on the world, and that's the, that, that is relevance realization of beings. But relevance realization has to realize its own irrelevance with respect to being. Mm -hmm. It has to let, you have to stop trying to thingify your experience. Mm -hmm. That's movement up, Jacobs. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> in the Exodus story, yeah. what happens with Moses is that He's walking through the desert, so he's confused in some sense, yeah. and something attracts his attention. Yes. Right, it's the burning bush, and it doesn't like... Now, if, if you remember, was that in the wilding of Christian... What's, which video was that where I played about the burning bush and the fire? Um, that's that, that could, in fact, be in the... It could, in fact, be in the behind-the-paywall conversation on the magic mushrooms video and again that was a really good section i'm getting more and more frustrated with this paywall announced itself in some magnificent way it glimmers in the shadows of his perception but then he investigates it so imagine this imagine that something glimmers to attract your attention that's mercury by the way right? yes yes he's the winged messenger hermes, of the gods yes, yes. hermes yeah, yeah trying to attract your attention so now you pursue that and now you pursue it deeply. And the deeper you pursue it, the farther you get away from the particulars of the phenomenon itself, and the closer you get to something like generalized being. And that seems... And the farther you... That's a really interesting way to say it. The farther you get away from the particularized and the closer you get to generalized being... Got to keep thinking about that. Seems to be the idea that's implicit in that story of the burning bush and the announcement but, of the name of but, God. Yes, but so what happened... This is... You know, this is from Gregory of Nyssa and, and, and his work on Moses going up, right, uh, at the mountain, and, and, and all the way to Nicholas of Cusa, right? The burning bush is inherently paradoxical, right? Cause yes, it, right, because right, right, it's, right. it's, it's something that is destroying itself but is maintained. Right, right, right. And, and so it's underneath. And again, if you read in Exodus, Moses is drawn to it because, you know, you, you probably doing shepherding in the wilderness, you, you get lightning strikes and you'll have... Uh, lightning strikes and you'll have wildfires and so you'll see you'll see wildfires but then here is a bush that is burning but not consumed and that obviously gets into a lot of the symbolism 
generation and destruction. It's underneath all of the mechanisms by which being is particularized. It that's, that's an, I had never thought of it in terms of that language, generation and destruction. Is trying to beneath all of the mechanisms by which being is particularized. It is trying to point, I am that I am, or actually I will be what I will right, be. Right, right. Right? And so it is trying to point to the ground of being as opposed to the world. And what, yeah, what, yeah. what does Moses try and comprehend? And it's a paradox, as you said. It's so interesting, eh? yeah. because a paradox is pointing the way to that. That's sort of, you, you talked, I think, in your lecture at Ralston about the idea that the parables in the New Testament are basically Zen cones, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're paradoxes that are designed to produce a state of insight, yeah. and that's the grip of imagination by relevance realization and a pointer to something that's beyond at the same exactly, time. Exactly, you get gripped by the paradox. And does yeah. Moses try to comprehend it? No, he takes off his shoes and he goes into reverence. Right, which is, right, right, right. right. He, now, the didn't pay any attention to it but this question of gripped because one of the big one, one of the big under underlying tensions going on in this little corner between let's say the church folks and the non-church folks is the is the question of the agency and personhood of god of god number one of the divine of of all of this and and, and whereas, you know, John will, will regularly concede that, well, this is the only language that we have, so that's the language that we use, um, that, that is, in fact, the existential mode that, that gets into, you know, the spirit of finesse and the, um, the spirit of geometry and the spirit of finesse. We, we go into spirit of finesse mode in this, in this three-dimensional active space that we inhabit and and again if you once you start paying attention to that you see that everywhere that's why he takes off his shoes yes. yeah because he now he knows he's standing on holy ground and, and so the right. attempt to name is abandoned even that doesn't mean you stop naming yeah it's ridiculous yeah right? well that would be the abandonment of of sanity right in some real but sense there is there's a moment when the relevance realization right can point to its own irrelevance when you are trying to not grip anything. Yeah. You're trying to be opened to the ground of everything. Right, right, right. So yeah. that's how yeah. I would answer and, it. And this, I think, is connected to idolatry. And and I will get into my conversation on climbing Mount Sophia with Ken Lowry on idolatry. And at some point after it's run its course on his channel, I'll probably put it on mine. But you'll be able to find it easily. The YouTube algorithm will deliver you if, if these are the kinds of videos that you like. But the, it, it, that's, where, that's where you get into idolatry because so much religion is, you know, especially the Abraham, Abrahamic religions, um, you know, the emphasis on, on submission, let's say, in, in, in Islam, um, um, following the will of God in Judaism and Christianity, is, is all about getting to this point that John just noted where um, we, are, we are being gripped. We are not, in fact, gripping. And, then, and the utility, okay, so now the utility of being open to the ground of everything, let, let me lay this out. You tell me what you think about okay. this. So, so you might say, well, do, does everything have to converge on one? That's the monotheistic question yeah, in some yeah, real yeah. sense. Well, let's say, forget that question for a minute. Let's look at the alternative. Things don't converge. Yes. Okay, so what's the psychological state associated with non-convergence? Well, there's two. If I, if I have a multitude of goals, and if they're a multitude, that means they conflict, because yes. if they didn't conflict, they'd be a unity. Yeah. So I have a multitude of goals. Okay, so that's an entropy problem. And I'm going to be chaotic. Now, they talked a lot about entropy, and I still don't really have my head around this psychological definition of entropy because in some ways it seems so counterintuitive as compared to the physics definition of entropy. But, but Jordan is sort of trying to put this together. Part of what happens that, that I've said often with respect to consciousness is it's sort of monofocal. And that, I think, is, is partly because of its relationship to the frame problem. We can't, you, you can't be 
you sort of consciousness switch between two things and you have three things and once you get up to four things it's really too many but it's and and so this this sort of collapses into something which is manageable which would be narrative or a hierarchy let's say confused two if I, if i have a multitude of goals and if they're a multitude, that means they conflict because yes. if they didn't conflict, they'd be a unity. Yeah. So I have a multitude of goals. Okay, so that's an entropy problem and I'm going to be chaotic, confused, and anxious as a consequence. So that's one consequence. And the second consequence is if positive emotion is associated with movement towards a goal, but I have multiple fractured goals, yes, yeah. then the intensity of my positive emotion, that's my enthusiasm, and that's possession by God, by yeah, the way, yeah. then my enthusiasm is diminished. So the alternative to the vision of a monotheistic unity is a chaotic plurality that's associated with the decrement in motivation and enthusiasm. Yes. Now, that doesn't answer the question of what that ultimate unity might be, right? But it does at least point out the consequences of not assuming that such a thing exists. It's basically... And that's, if you, that's a super interesting idea. The, you could call it the psychopathology of polytheism. It's something like that. And, and when that's manifested socially, this is also something interesting. If you and I cannot agree on a unity of vision, now in the moment we're, we're both exploring and we agree on that. So we can sit here without conflict. If we cannot agree on a unity of vision, then we are in conflict. Yes. Those are the only options. Yeah. So now we have this problem. There has to be a unity or else, these are the consequences. And then the mystery is, well, what constitutes that unity? Yeah. Now, in, in the conversation that I just had a little bit earlier, I'm recording this on the same day that I did the marriage crisis conversation with Rod and Eamon and Catherine. Coherent societies are almost always religious, and that, and and the the religion will have a cohesion, and and this is you know even even a religion like Hinduism that is Hinduism is an interesting religion because in some ways it's you know we've got you know hundreds of thousands of gods, yet it's also there's also sort of a trinitarian aspect to it and there's also sort of a monotheistic aspect to it i mean hinduism is just sort of the a, a label for the conglomeration of religions that come out of india let's, let's let's call it that and one of the things that i noted in the marriage conversation i didn't push this point too hard because obviously there's a lot on the table in that conversation between the four of us but but religions, religions sort of organize this and suck it together and give it, give it cohesion and structure. And of course, hierarchy is a way to manage that structure vertically. Uh, narrative is a way to manage that structure horizontally. And, and this is part of the reason that, that religions exist because they're, they're doing exactly what Jordan says needs to be done. Let's, let's replay a little bit of this. Yeah, I can sit here now. This ology of polytheism, it's but it does at least point out the consequences of not assuming that such a thing exists. It's basically the, you could call it the psychopathology of polytheism. It's something like that. And, and when that's manifested socially, this is also something interesting. If you and I cannot agree on a unity of vision, now in the moment we're, we're both exploring and we agree on that. So we can sit here without conflict. If we cannot agree on a unity of vision, then we are in conflict. Yes. Those are the only options. Yeah. So now we have this problem. There has to be a unity or else, these are the consequences. And then the mystery is, well, what constitutes that unity? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, uh, you see arguments from Plotinus and Spinoza basically doing that, that move, which is, I, I, I think, I mean, there are some things you can say about the unity. It, it can't be at any level below ultimate reality. Right, right. Right. It has to be because sort of, that's sort of the definition of ultimate reality. Yes, exactly, sense. exactly. And and and, and, and it's it's also a, a reason why religion as such is unavoidable. If you understand religion as those things that are of ultimate concern, um, re religions tie the particular to the ultimate. Now, Peugeot does a nice job in the Exodus series of talking about this, about talking about it having to come down. And Peugeot does an excellent job of talking about that in the Exodus series. I don't remember which episode. I can't show it to you. 
maybe at some point it'll be released. I don't know, but then perhaps the conversation will go on. I don't know, but but this is again we're we're sort of tying together the world that that we inhabit, and then you get it's so I could add to the psychological, the epistemic, right? To understand something and to grasp it, its reality is is an act of integration. It's, a, it's an, a, you know, yeah. right? And so, so think about what science does. Here's all these disparate phenomena and I get have a unifying understanding. And then here's two different theory. Here's Darwinian natural selection. Here's Mendelian genetics. And I get, the, I get modern evolutionary theory, the, the grand synthesis, right? And why, what, and why are scientists trying to find the ultimate? Yeah, and those are profound syntheses and they're profound because they point to a deep underlying unity. Exactly, exactly. And this is the Neoplatonic argument. And then, and then you add in the argument I did at length in Ralston. If reality isn't, or if that fundamental grammar of intelligibility doesn't conform to a fundamental grammar Yes, right, right. That's, we, yeah. we are doomed. We, yeah, are, we, yeah. are, we are doomed yeah. to a, a radical solipsism, a radical... So mm -hmm. it's not... You can't... You, you know, I've, I've heard John talk about this fundamental grammar, and I, I've always just sort of said, okay, well, I, I sort of understand how he's using that metaphor, but the more I think about it, grammar is an interesting choice of metaphor in this. Basically, what he's talking about is that the there must be there must be some... There, there must be some alignment between the world out there and the world in here. Now, of course, there, there are a variety of ways of achieving that. That some, some more, some are better than others. Let's say. I mean, projection is all about taking the inside and throwing it on the outside. The argument, of course, is is that if we're if if all we're dealing with in terms of that fundamental grammar is projection, then we wouldn't expect to have absolutely anything work in the world and things in fact do work in the world uh, semi-reliably always with difficulty so the there's the intelligibility of the world um, is is a is a critical piece of this entire thing and of, of course that is part of why of the major world religions the Abrahamic religions have functioned in a certain way and science emerges out of Christianity and Islam in a in a way, and Greeks too, but some of the Eastern religions that hold to a, a position of an illusory nature of the world um, struggle would struggle more with that, and that's reasonable based on this this grammar of intelligibility, like John likes to say. You, I I would argue, and I, I would ask people to look at the longer argument at Ralston, but. You can't take the Kantian position that, yes, that is the grammar of intelligibility, but reality is somehow fundamentally different. Now, you'll notice Kant coming up a lot. He comes up a lot in my talk with John and Jordan Cooper. Basically, what is happening with Kant in these conversations is Kant is becoming a, uh, basically a stand-in for this great divorce between knowing the thing in itself and our experience of it. Um, Kant, Descartes, Kant is sort of building on Descartes and you have this great divorce between the thing in itself and the noumena and the phenomena. And, and that's why Kant keeps coming up because then Kant is going to, Kant is then being uh, blamed for a, a degree of, of skepticism that, um, that, we are, uh, that we are subject to or imprisoned by. Because, like, just like Clark's argument, different Clark, Samuel Clark, right? Like, Kant presupposes the existence of other minds with an epistemology that gives him no way of acknowledging the existence of other minds. Why is he writing the damn critique if he doesn't think, why is he upset when he doesn't get the reception? Because he believes that there are other minds, right, that, and, they, and, they're, and they're real and they're out there. And he somehow has access to them, and they have alternative frame. Like, right. So his implicit presuppositions he's and in a, his explicit he's, presuppositions don't match. He's in a performative contradiction, like yes, Whitehead yes, talks yes, about. Yes. And so, if you and, and so the Neoplatonic argument is not the particulars, but the grammar of intelligibility and the grammar of reality have to ultimately. Okay. Okay. Ultimately so this, this is actually really why I wanted to talk to you today. So, <laughs> so this this issue here. So I did a lecture for Ralston as well at Ephesus on the Greek idea of the Logos. Yes. Yeah, so, okay, so I wanna, I want to, I wanna ask you some questions about this. And I haven't treated that, that if, even if I don't have access to the uh, 
Exodus series. Jordan's putting out plenty of material. And I suppose Please. this has something to do possibly with Neoplatonism and Buddhism and Christianity. Sure. Okay, so let's, we'll, we'll open with the question about what might constitute this ultimate unity. Now, you could think about it as a phenomenological unity in some sense and, and put it in the objective space. But, but I want to make a different case. So I think the ultimate unity is better conceptualized as something that you might term a spirit. And, and we can get into your discussion. Yeah, Jonathan and I, well. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, so a spirit is an animating principle or a set of animating principles. Yes, yes. And a universal spirit would be the same set of animating principles. I, I'm, I, I love where he's going with this. I'm not crazy about the animating principles because part of what we're dealing with in all of this is the history of deism, the history of the depersonalization of the world. And, and so when we reduce spirit to animating principles, we, we've once again taken us, we're, we're back in the machine world in some way. We're back in the, we're, we're back in the propositional um, because these principles are, could sort of best be understood as propositional. And it sort of takes us out of the adverbial that, that John had talked about earlier animating a lot of people simultaneously, yes, right? Yes. So uh, um, it's like a meme in, in, the, in the Dawkins sense, right? It's like a hyper meme. And so the question is, well, why should you conceptualize that as a spirit? So let me offer a proposition about what's happening in the biblical corpus. Okay. So, okay, so there's some attempt to specify the implicit unity. And the way the biblical corpus does that is by laying out a sequence of narratives. And the narratives stress a different yes. ultimate unity. Right. So for example, in the just wanted to slow it down for you a little bit and listen to that again because it's 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 it might not be too easy to grasp immediately. You have all of these stories and then you have the question, well what what holds these stories together? Now for for many people experientially, well they're all in the Bible. This is this is a book that has authority for us or a book that has tradition or for some reason you have all these stories. What holds these stories together? Why were these stories selected? And again, this gets back to the the question the the issue that the world is just too large. There's so many stories I could tell you about how I um, opened the gate and closed the gate when I got to church and how I made breakfast for myself and what I did with it. And, and you'd be like, I don't care about any of these things, Paul. I would Relevance realization. So you have these stories. And again, as, as Jordan has talked about, these stories are compressed and compressed and compressed. And some of them are very, very tight, but very, very powerful. And they're very, very old. Story of Noah. Here's the unity that's being... That is... Proposition about what's happening in the biblical corpus. Okay. So, okay. So, there's some attempt to specify the implicit unity. And the way the biblical corpus does that is by laying out a sequence of narratives. And the narratives stress a different yes. ultimate unity. Right. So, for example, in the story of Noah, here's the unity that's being pointed to. So, you have Noah characterized as someone who's a wise man for his time and place, which is all, any, all of us, anything, all any of us could hope for. Yeah. Now, Noah has an intuition that the storms are coming, and he has faith in the intuition and acts on it. And now, now, it's very interesting. This gets into the whole question of divine speech, intuition, phenomenology. But to, but to, to talk to it as an intuition um, gets into the whole question of how we are swimming in the world. And then God is characterized as the source of the intuition. And faith, in Noah's case, is characterized as the mm. willingness to abide by that intuition. That's the story. Again. And that's a far better definition of faith than, um, you know, believing things that you have no evidence for. I mean, his definition there is, is, is a much more faithful definition. Against and then, all the people that are criticizing him. And again. against all other things that might occupy his attention. Yes, he yes. prioritizes that. Yes, yes. Okay, so he, and that's how he manifests faith in it. That's right. Okay, so now another story bumps up against that. And the next story is the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And, and they're very different narrative. And so what you have here is this, and this is actually... Well, the next story is, of course, uh, Noah, Noah, you know, planting a vineyard, getting drunk, and uh, one of his sons laugh, and two of his sons are respectful and cursing his son. And so, um, but fair enough. Related to this problem of criticality, but we won't go into that. You have this proposition that human beings can build these towers of abstraction 
that can become totalitarian in yes, their essence, yes, right? Yes. And that God punishes that. Now again, watch what Jordan is doing in terms of his biblical interpretation. You find this all over the place is he's doing in some sense what every preacher does, but he's doing it in a very different in a very different place than others are. Um, you know, now he's sort of connecting it politically, but again, it's there, there's why is it not just simply arbitrary? That's the question that a lot of people ask. Well, earlier they talked about there's going to have to be concordance and convergence along multiple different lines. Yeah, he destroyed yeah. And this is actually related to this problem of criticality, but we won't go into that. You have this proposition that human beings can build these towers of abstraction that can become totalitarian in yes, their essence, yes, right? Yes. And that God punishes that. Yeah, he destroys. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he fragments them. He, he fragments it and makes people confused. Yeah. Okay, so now that's a very different. See, now part of what's nice here is that John knows his Bible. If you don't know your Bible, you can't participate in these things. You know, John's been to Sunday school. Jordan's probably read this more as an adult, but um, know your Bible a little bit to be able to participate. Different picture of God, yes, yeah. the Noah God. Yeah. Okay, but they're contiguous. Yeah. They, they call that metonymy. Yeah. So there's uh, an implication by juxtaposition that there's an identity between those two different things, yeah. but they're very diverse. Okay, so then I'll just do two more of these. So yeah. then you have the story of Abraham. Yeah. Uh, Abraham is a slow starter, right? So he's very wealthy. His parents are wealthy. He lives a very privileged and sheltered life, but a spirit makes itself manifest to him and the spirit is the call to adventure. Yeah. And so God in the Abrahamic story is the spirit that calls even the comfortable out to the cat catastrophic adventure of their yeah, life. Yeah. And that's juxtaposed against these other two spirits. Then you have, let's say, Moses. Now you have a different characterization of the ultimate unity. And the ultimate unity in the story of Moses is the unity that announces itself in yeah. the burning bush, but exactly. also the spirit that punishes the tyrant yeah. and that calls the slaves out of slavery. And, okay, and so now the open future too. Meaning, the gods of Egypt are gods of location and function. The God, see now John's doing it too. God of Moses and even more, even so, this is a development of the God of Abraham. The God of Moses travels with people through space and time into an open future that they right, make. right, right. Okay, and that's a that's a reference, as far as I can tell, back to the opening lines of Genesis, because God characterizes Himself at the beginning of the book of Genesis. I think in terms that are very much akin to the terms we've been using to describe consciousness itself, because God is the thing that confronts the pluripotential chaos, and that's really, if you look at what uh, what is what's the word tail. Tohu vabohu. That's really what it means. It means pluripotential chaos. It's something mm. like that. He confronts that pluripotential chaos and generates habitable or the habitable order that is good out of it. And that's the image of God in man. Those are identified as the same thing. And this is so crucial because it also implies. So one of the questions my students used to always ask me is, how do you know that what you're teaching us isn't just another ideology? Because yeah. I was trying to teach counter-ideology, and that's a really good question, it's right? A, it's the but question right it is, now. It is the question. But if, if imagine that you could have a story that concentrates on the process by which functional stories are generated. Well, this is what I wanted to say to you. I think what you're getting, I mean, uh, a spirit is something like a multiply realizable, like, you know, generative function. What I mean yeah, by that yeah. is you're trying to find the through. A multi-realizable generative function sit down for a romantic dinner and say, we have a multi-realizable genitive function between us. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good phrase, but uh, it's, uh, it's, again, we have this, we have this, we have this disenchanting habit to us. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. Because we want to, even if you're sitting down for a romantic dinner and you're looking across the table, you want to know the other. And um, in, in some ways, the most interesting other is inexhaustible. You know, I've, I've known my wife for 37 years and um, uh, I have not been able to, I've been, doing, I've been doing a lot of hard work of mapping her for years, but I have certainly not exhausted her. 
And I, according to her testimony, uh, she has not exhausted me because sometimes I exhaust her in my unintelligibility and my surprisingness. But they're getting at what's, you know, what's animating. And we're, again, we're, we're sort of keep doing it in deistic terms. True line. I th Which functional stories are generated. Well, this is what I wanted to say to you. I think what you're getting, I mean, uh, a spirit is something like a multiply realizable, like, you know, generative function. What I mean yeah, by that yeah. is you're trying to find the through line. Each one of the, think about, remember I did the multidimensional opponent processing? Each one of these narratives is an opponent processing. You're, you're right, yeah, it's right? Cain versus Abel. Yeah, and there's this, and uh, but there's also, right, there's Egypt versus the promise. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah. Egypt yeah, is yeah. conflict. But, but, but it's the it's the it's the sticks in the bush versus the fire. Egypt is exploit the here now or explore the there then. Mm -hmm. That we talked about at the core of relevance. Remember they talk about the flesh pots of Egypt is like the, the, this. You, but if we stay here, right, there's so much we could just exploit. But, but you're right. Well, that's what the Israelites get get. Uh, what would you nostalgic about when they're in the desert? Exactly. Too, is, right. Their immediate needs are no longer being gratified. And that causes them to become faithless and, and, and fractious. So what I'm, I'm suggesting to you is like, I'll just use the, the, the Exodus story though, is you, as one of, it, but all of them, I would argue, what myth is always doing, or often doing, and, and Levi-Strauss had sort of a sense of this with structuralism, but what it's, it's doing is it's pointing you to opponent processing. And, 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 and then you can think about, okay, here's this myth with this opponent process. Is it, is it pointing you to opponent processing or is it a narrative way of pointing you to that which opponent processing in a cognitive psych way, which is also opponent processing is a very, I know Mark, I can't hear opponent processing without Mark Lefebvre, who's um, colonized me a little bit in my head. You know, no, this is cooperative processing. I, I, I prefer, Mark, sorry, I prefer opponent processing. I think it's better because it it emphasizes, even, even though, the the frame around it is cooperative it emphasizes the uh challenge and the back and forth between them here's this myth with this opponent processing what's the through lines and then what i do is i i, I try to find like like what you're doing what i was talking about earlier you're trying to find the multi-dimensional yeah. Like Nexus, the through line of the meta of uh, the meta like, through line, yeah, of all the opponent processing. You're trying to, and and that's what we do when we read the story. But we do it at such a deep level that we're trying to we're trying to find the the character of a personal god. This is what we're doing when we study a beloved spouse or a parent or a child or a teacher or maybe a. A, a dangerous animal. We are looking for, we're seeing all the complexity, and this is where, of course, Peugeot kind of comes in with, we're seeing a tiger, not not, claw, not um, claws and teeth and, and fur and muscles, um, a tiger, but we're, we're, we're trying to find the through line of all the different opponent processes and and that then becomes you know integrate that into the the thing from above let's say that you can call it a gestalt the 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 formation whatever whatever turns it into an object in the world say it that way you're trying to say the met but earlier you're trying to find the multi-dimensional yeah. Like Nexus, the through line of the meta of uh, the meta like, through line, yeah, of all the opponent processing. You're trying to you're trying to say, okay, all of the relevance realization. If I if I could do all the trade-offs, this is Nicholas of Cusa with his open sense of infinity. Infinity in the ancient Greek world, infin infinity is a bad thing. It's chaos, but with Cusa, it there's a fun book that someone pointed me about that basically the history of zero and they talk about zero and infinity and I I didn't make it all the way through that book but when he said that it's like bang right there into that book and opens up into trade-offs. this is Nicholas of Cusa with his open sense of infinity infinity in the ancient Greek world infinity is a bad thing it's chaos but with Cusa it opens up into and then the whole neoplatonic tradition into a positive thing it's like no no if I could get all of the of all of the opposites, I would see that in infinity, they all coincide, the coincidence of the opposites. Right, oh, right? Oh, oh, oh. And mm -hmm. that would be the culmination 
not in, in, in any entity that would be sort of the summation of what our cognition is about. It, mm -hmm. it would be sort of, I would have found the source of intelligibility because I would have moved to the deepest grammar of cognition, mm -hmm. which would get me... And that's the resolution of all opposing conflicts in some... Okay, so here's an interesting question. So I've been thinking about this recently, so talking with Pajo. So there's this idea in the, um, in the, the story of Adam and Eve that suffering doesn't descend upon the world until the sin of Adam and Eve. Yeah. And I've been trying to take that apart with Matthew Pajot, most particularly. <laughs> yeah. And Pajot believes that, Matthew believes that the sin of Eve and Adam was something like pride. And so Eve hearkened to the voice of the serpent. Augustine. And the serpent, in some sense, is that which is poisonous in, and, and the fruit that it offers is inedible in its essence. And Eve's pride is that she can even speak for the poisonous and inedible. And Adam's pride is that he'll hearken to the voice of Eve. Mm. And so, and so, and I like that idea. I, I like the idea that pride comes before a fall and that we can bite off more than we can chew and that men's pride, uh, what would you say? Notice the proverbs. Motivates them to attempt to appear bigger than they are in the eyes of women and that women's pride motivates them to incorporate under the guise of compassion more than they can eat, mm. let's say. Now, there's a Christian idea and, and a Jewish idea as well that suffering doesn't descend upon the world until this sin takes place. Now, so you can imagine, imagine that you followed the through line of meaning assiduously and you were able to bring the opposites into coincidence. Mm. And you'd have to do that with proper epistemic humility. Of course. Right? And openness to possibility. The question would be in some sense is, to what degree do your moral errors actually constitute the suffering to begin with? And then to what degree do you think the suffering itself could be ameliorated? And I mean, maybe eliminated in favor of something like the spirit of play, if you followed the through line of meaning religiously. Mm, mm. Right? I mean, and that's because I have this sympathy to the idea that, that unbearable suffering in some sense is built into the structure of reality itself, right? Because we're finite and mortal creatures. That, that makes you more of a Buddhist. Well, yes, <laughs> well, right, right. Although, although you see the same emphasis in Judaism, right? With the yeah. tragic sense of history. And of course, the fact that the central figure in Christianity is crucified in some sense, speaks to the same thing. But then it, there is an open question there, right? Which is, well, yes, suffering is built into finitude, but it's clearly the case that we exactly... Is, is suffering built into finitude? Or, again, I think about the, the uh, Ecclesiastes 3, where he has placed eternity in our hearts. The, the finitude, the suffering of finitude does not relate to my dog, Maybe if he whines a little bit because he wants to get up on the counter, or the the suffering of finitude is 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 a uniquely seemingly a a, a a pretty uniquely human thing, and again that then ties it back to this Genesis story of the fall and the um, the the rebellion and the arise of consciousness in Adam and Eve. But then it, there is an open question there, right? Which is, well, yes, suffering is built into finitude, but it's clearly the case that we exaggerate, multiply it by failing to hit the mark, you know? And so- Yeah, I think we can ameliorate it. Um, I happen to think that the very processes of relevance realization that make us adaptive make us perennially susceptible to self-deception. That's my interpretation of the first noble truth of Buddhism. The very processes, like, 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 just look at the, the heuristic and bias literature. The, it's double named for a good reason. I can't do, I can't actually calculate formal probability of events. It's combinatorially explosive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have to use the representative heuristic and the availability heuristic, right? But, and there's, and, and, and the work of Kurt, I'll be talking about this in the course, right? Uh, Gigerens and others is, in, in many situations, that outperform. In, in real-world, messy, ill-defined situations where there's real uncertainty, not risk. We've confused those two. Things. Risk is you can assign a probability. Right. right? Where it's a, but real uncertainty, these heuristics actually do really, really well. But they do make you 
prone to mistake. You take your loved one to the airport and you say, don't, you say all these euphemisms for don't die, like text me when you're there, safe trip, because you can easily imagine a plane crashing. And when a plane crashes, it's not a crash, it's, it's a disaster, it's a tragedy. So the availability and the representative heuristics are getting triggered like mad. And then you get back in your car the North American death machine right, without right. giving it a second thought. And that's an act of self-deception, mm -hmm. right? And it's a significant, you're not properly calibrating your level of affect and arousal to the risks you're facing. Self-deception, is deception the best word? That's, so that's what I mean when I think the very things that, I can't get rid of the heuristics because then I would face combinatorial explosion mm -hmm. if I try and do the probability calculations. But the, and this is the no free lunch theorem, mm -hmm. right? It's well, that's, that's the complicating factor of how much of, so you might say, well, how much of suffering is due to the intrinsic nature of finite finitude, mortal right. finitude, how much is due to ignorance and uh, inevitable blindness, and then how much is due to failure to hit the mark. And wisdom is about being able to differentiate those and properly calibrate your efforts to that differentiation. Well, and also don't forget rebellion. Um, it's, it's what Dostoevsky writes about when he writes Letters from the Underground, that you know, if, if you would have the absolute perfect world, the Matrix makes the same point, to what degree would you blow it up? Elaborate on that. So, so Plato, Drew Highland, finite transcendence. Plato's whole argument is we are finite transcendent. We are being yeah. sort of capable of transcending ourselves. But if we only pay attention to that, we fall prey to hubris. Right, right. If we, if we only pay attention to our finitude, we fall prey to tyranny and servitude. And right, we have right. to keep the two in ongoing opponent processing. And, yeah, and, that's, yeah. and what we want, to, what we tr keep trying to do is resolve it into one of these or the other. And we keep going back and forth. And Plato is about, you know, you can't resolve that. You have to always hold those two in, in, to, to together. Right, so, right. And that means you have to, you have to properly realize like, so there's no solution. There's no the solution is participation in the process that continues to generate the solution. So let me give you a strong analogy. When we've been invoked, is there a final form of life in evolution? That makes no sense. If you understand evolution, there isn't a there, there isn't a culminating life form. That's not that's not the that's not I, there's no. This, this is the this is in some ways connected to the conversation that John and myself and Sam have had about evolution and telos. And, and I find Sam's argument quite compelling. Sam had a conversation on a smaller channel. After I release this, he'll probably drop it in the, uh, he sent it in an email, but I'm kind of in a hurry right now and I can't find it and drop it in. But um, this is all very, very interesting. No intentionality to evolution, but mm -hmm. you know, I'm just speaking that way, right? There's, there's, no, there's no project of, ah, now, now we'll have the organism that will- Again, there's, there's no intentionality in evolution. Hmm. You can't know that. You really can't. You suspect it, but you can't know it. And one of the interesting things that's happening right now is, is, of course, the awakening of machine learning. And in some ways, machine learning is somewhat akin to evolution. We are taking, we are taking sort of a, a, a machine agent and we're setting it on the world to to grab data and. But there's there's a lot of intentionality beneath that machine learning, and it's being set out into the world. Never suffer the possibility of extinction. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. I think that, and if relevance realization, the meaning is a kind of you know ongoing rapid cognitive evolution. There is no final form of that. This is one of the areas where I criticize the Platonic framework, Plato's notion of uh, of the sacred as completion, static perfection, that I find is very problematic because I don't think it actually sits well with his notion of, and Socrates- I like to think of music in that regard too. Yes. And you think about what Bach- Okay, it, go, it goes on and it's interesting, but I, I, I suspect a lot will start this video and get discouraged because I really didn't get into it until like one on the, it was even even is like 115 or so but there's 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 good stuff in there and i think you sort of get kind of this little mini uh duet of jordan peterson biblical series right here in this video and 
thought it was cool. So I am out of time, and I have to stop this recording. And um, my son gave my wife and I a Christmas present. One of my sons gave my wife and I a Christmas present of a. They have these little um, cooking classes that you can go to as a couple, and I think we'll have a. I think we'll have a delightful time learning how to make Mexican street food tonight. I think I will have an even more delightful time eating the food that we make. So, um, yeah, this I uh, releasing the marriage crisis video on Friday. This will probably come out on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. birthday, and maybe I'll get to record another video tomorrow, which is Friday, along with my first draft. So I'll have something out Tuesday morning for homeroom because poor Grim Grizz. No homeroom video. I think just a little part of him cries. So thanks for watching. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think.